Kiwi late. It's going to be close here. Kiwi's going to beat them all with a mighty run. Driving Lane races up the Magnifique, takes the lead in the cup. Out wide is Guns in Stormy Seas, but Piping Lane's going to win the cup. But it's Doremus nicely clear in the Melbourne Cup. He's got the cup run. He's holding nothing like a Dane, and Doremus wins the cup. Rain Lover and Allsop, they're going head and head. Rain Lover on the inside. Rain Lover's got his neck in front and won by a neck. Champagne and Jezebel. Champagne, Jezebel fighting back. Jezebel, Champagne, they hit the line. Jezebel wins the cup from Champagne. But a champion becomes a legend. McCarty Debra's won it. American Trevian. Celebrating Australia's greatest race, the history of the Melbourne Cup. Pelion coming from the clouds on the outside, rising fast is too far in front, however, and in the run of the boat, rising fast, going to win the Melbourne Cup by two legs from Helion. Right fingers goes to Zima, they hit the line, locked together, dead eight. A dead eat in the Melbourne Cup, Zima and Lightfingers. Rain Lover's eight lengths in front, going further away, and Rain Lover wins the Melbourne Cup by ten lengths. Here's Brian Martin. Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to have your company on the history of the Melbourne Cup. What an enthralling, intriguing horse race it is. And when we think about the Melbourne Cup, that name keeps bobbing up. The iconic name, the one that uh, everyone refers to, the Mighty Farley. He won the Melbourne Cup in 1930. And I thought it was about time I came back to the studios of Andrew Lemon, the VRC historian. And we've got to trace back and just find out more about the immortal, the Red Terror. Farlap, good morning to you. He never goes out of date, does he, Farlap? Uh, I wrote about him 30 years ago in my uh, second volume of the History of Australian Thoroughbred Racing, and I was having a, a reminiscent look back over it again today, and I thought it, it still stands up, Brian. Without a doubt, and recently uh, we've seen the retirement of uh, the mighty Winks. And today's generation, including probably myself, we say, well, it's the greatest horse we've, we've ever seen in our time. And I think that's a fair comment. We didn't see Farlap. But why is it that the, uh, the story of Farlap and what Farlap achieved and, and the passing of Farlap in America, it seems to just grow in stature, the whole tale, each and every year. And it's nearly 90 years since he left us. It's a story of an amazing horse. And then there's the story around the amazing horse, I'm, I'll read what I wrote then because I think it's interesting to have a look at it now and say, does that, as I say, still stand up? Um, what I wrote then is, the story of Farlap is so well known that it hardly needs repeating. The intriguing question now, as his exploits recede into the past, is how he came to achieve the status of legend, how he has managed to retain that status, and whether the legend fits the reality. A facetious historian once concocted a spurious entry in the Australian Dictionary of Biography for Farlap, but in truth the horse deserves an entry ahead of many people in that multi-volumed lexicon. The merits of the horse can't be disputed. 37 wins were compiled almost without a break, and once they began, Farlap ran unplaced only once when he failed to carry 10 stone 10 pounds, which I think is 67 kilograms mm -hmm. plus, in the 1931 Melbourne Cup. His AJC derby record stood for nearly three decades and he set Australasian records for 10 furlongs and two and a quarter miles, yet he also won the rich seven furlong sprint, the Caulfield Futurity. He won the greatest races, from championships to handicaps, including the 1930 Melbourne Cup, carrying nine stone 12 pounds, which is 62.5. It's instructive to look at Farlap when he was still just a horse. <laughs> The 160 guinea yearling, that was cheap, by the unfashionable sire Knight Raid, imported to New Zealand after a lacklustre turf career in England and Australia, out of a dam who had little to recommend her. Taken to Sydney by Harry Telford, Farlap was slow to show any form. At his fifth start, he won a maiden juvenile handicap over six furlongs at Rose Hill. Yet Telford knew that Farlap would improve, and news that another night raid foal, Night March, had won the New Zealand Derby and the Dunedin Cup must have been encouraging. He entered Farlap in the wait-for-age Warwick Stakes at Warwick Farm, and his jockey, Jack Brown, carried three pounds over the weight. A photograph of the finish shows him pocketed on the rails, close up to three magnificent racehorses, Limerick, Mollison and Winnerlot, and some sporting riders noticed the run. Farlap, they said, promises well. A fortnight later, Farlap had his first start at Ranwick and ran second to the brilliant Mollison over nine furlongs. 
Up to that time, Farlap had not been regarded as a Derby hope. And then, according to the press, came his great effort in the Chelmsford Stakes. And now the majority of racegoers regarded him as New Zealand's hope in the Derby. Farlap, they said, is a very substantially built gelding. His finishing effort on Saturday suggests stamina above the ordinary. Well, of course... Comanche would be meeting him much better at the weights in the derby. Night March won the next race on the card. Now, the riding of Brown in the Chelmsford was criticised and Jim Munro took the mount in the Rose Hill Guineas the following week. His win was apparently so effortless and decisive that it's reasonably clear, according to the press, that he should again account for his Guineas opponents when the test is changed to the 12 furlongs at Randwick. And suddenly there was a story for the racing writers. Farlap, they said, like a bolt from the blue, had shattered their theories on Derby Prospect. He was hardly thought of a few weeks ago, they said, and now one of the most fancied candidates. And after Warwick Farm, people began to ask, who is this Farlap? And on the morning of the race, the old trainer James Scobie declared, I will win the Derby with Carradale, of course owned by LKS McKinnon. Connections of the well-bred honour regarded their horse as a certainty, but instead Farlap hit the front three furlongs from home and strode away to win. And this is from the newspaper The Australasian. Farlap is a great raking gelding. Plain, maybe, compared with the Colts, but withal he carries such a distinctive air of class about him for a gelding that one, uh, one must indeed be hypercritical to fault him. He fills the eye for what he is, a big, reachy stare, with not an ounce of lumber about him. He is a great extended fellow and lopes along in effortless fashion. Well, he'd put down the mighty from their seat. Carradale cost 2,000 guineas as a yearling, honour 2,300, a New Zealand record. Farlap repeated the dose in Melbourne in the Victoria Derby at long odds on, and when with Bobby Lewis riding, he ran third to night march in the Melbourne Cup, the Australasian wrote, Well, Farlap's a good average derby winner, but no regret should be expressed that he's a gelding. Well, with hindsight, with a riding partnership with Jim Pike, with maturity, with courage, with the love and dedication of his strapper, Tommy Woodcock, and with a magnificent series of victories, the good average derby winner became the Red Terror. And then his passage to America, <coughs> his gallant win in Mexico, and his painful, unexplained death broke the hearts of all Australians. The legend was born. Perhaps it takes his poor stuffed hide at the Melbourne Museum or Peter Corlett's beautiful statue, which now graces Flemington, to remind us he was a horse after all. Uh, that's interesting. He uh, he was a horse, and what a mighty horse he was. Um, the, the period that he raced through the end of the uh, the 20s, uh, of course through the early 30s, 3031. What was that period like in Melbourne? What, what was it like in Australia? It was a time when Melbourne was starting to slide from reasonably uh, prosperous times into depression. So 1929, uh, starting to see unemployment rise, starting to see attendances go down at the race courses, which was always a little bit of an economic barometer. And um, as Farlap, of course, raced into 1930, 31, 32, he was racing right into the teeth of the depression uh, and I think it's often been said that, that Farlap was one of those uh, horses who gave Australians a sense of hope in that difficult time. I, I think there's truth in that. Mm. And and sort of around that time in, in a couple of years to come was Bradman. Uh, and people talk of Bradman and Farlap. Yeah, I think Bradman was actually returning from... Uh, it must have been the, uh, the the first Ashes too, when they'd been over over in in England. But he he was arriving, uh, I think, on the on the train on the same uh, um, spring that that uh, Farlap was starting to uh, gather his support and, and win the Derby in in Melbourne. So the two of them really begin together. Bradman's career lasted a bit longer than Farlap's, and <laughs> it is amazing. You're talking about Winks, uh, her career lasted uh, a few years longer than, than Farlap's. But if you think of really Farlap's 1929 is when he really hits the, the news in the spring of 29, and by March 1932, April 1932, he's dead. So it's a short career, but it was spectacular. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, you're, you've watched Winks's amazing career and you've, you've seen that. Um, what differences would you be drawing between Winks's career and Farlap's, Brian? There, there are sort of some quite obvious parallels. Uh, Farlap's record was 36 wins from 50 starts. Um, 
and he had a sequence of, was it about 16 to 17 straight wins, which doesn't compare to her, of course. No, well, he managed to uh, to get beaten in, in one or two of his uh, of his races in that sequence. But um, one of the, the things that really struck me with both is that both of those horses tended to scare off their opposition. Yeah. It's really interesting if you look at Farlap's early wins to realise some of those wins were in very small fields indeed. Uh, a couple of them were, were a two-horse race, um, three or four horses, and I guess if uh, Winks didn't have the support of, uh, of the Chris Waller stable, there might have been a few of those in her races too. Um, tell us about Telford. Um, he, Harry Telford, he, um, he was a, a very good trainer and he, I think he had um, a couple of smart horses even after uh, the demise of, of uh, Farlap. Mm. And, and Davis, David Davis and his involvement, the owner, and then there was a lease... Uh, change over of ownership, which was a little bit out of left field. Uh, people didn't see that coming. Uh, in racing, it's often the case that the uh, that you needed, if you were a trainer, you needed somebody with the money to to buy the horse. Uh, in this case, Telford um, uh, persuaded Davis to to cough up the money to to buy the horse. Davis was uh, an American who had business interest in Australia. Uh, was allegedly not very impressed with Farlap, but they didn't spend a lot of money to, to buy the horse. Um, but it was bought on the condition that it be leased to Telford. And so it raced under the name of Telford only until after the, um, after the 1930 Melbourne Cup win. Uh, and then it became in the, raced in the names of both uh, Telford and Davis because Davis had given Telford an option to, to buy into it. So the first part of uh, Farlap's career is the, the racing colours are slightly different in the two iterations of his career. So in the first part of his career, uh, he's racing in the name of Telford only, and uh, when he wins the Melbourne Cup, it's Telford who receives the trophy for the, uh, for the Melbourne Cup. Uh, when he ran in the 1931 Melbourne Cup and he was defeated, he was racing in the names of, of both of them. I think that Harry Telford was uh, a very, um, what you'd call an old school trainer, um, a, man of, a man of few words, a man of strong opinions. It's very hard for us who never saw him in person but did see the movie of Farlap to think of him as being somebody other than Martin Vaughan who played him so well in that movie. Um, but reality and, and the myth do differ a little bit. He had his own very clear ideas about training and they didn't always agree with um, those of his, uh, of his uh, strapper, the, the guy who really came in to look after Farlap, Tommy Woodcock. But um, I think that he felt that Farlap's uh, success was a reflection on, on him. Um, he bought a lot of horses after Farlap, uh, nothing, of course, ever nearly as good as Farlap. Um, but so a slightly tragic figure in some ways. Harry Telford um, ended up down on his luck, uh, lived quite a long life, but um, things things did go downhill in his life. Part of the uh, romance and a large part of the romance is the Woodcock story, Tommy Woodcock, because he, uh, he endeared himself uh, probably later in life, uh, more so th at the time when he was only a young man, and took the horse to America under his own banner as a trainer. But uh, a dearly loved man, um, and we saw that with that wonderful stay of Reckless and the cups that Reckless won, all bar the Melbourne Cup and almost <laughs> the Melbourne Cup in 1977. And Tommy was a special, special person. He was. Um, I had the pleasure of uh, meeting him on one or two occasions. Uh, there was a a family connection actually with friends of ours who, who raced uh, Reckless and that gave us an entree to the, the stables down at Brayside. Uh, he was one of those people that the public figure was the same as the private figure. And so in the Farlap story, there are, all sort, there are a number of different versions of the Tommy Woodcock story as told too. Um, in the 1930s, the Sporting Globe ran a series of sensational Tommy Woodcock reveals all and Farlap poisoned and Yanks and gangsters and all the rest of it. It was in that great tradition of, uh, of the press at the time where Tommy didn't write that at all. It was actually a journo called Jack Rowan and uh, Jack Rowan uh, wrote for the Sporting Globe and other papers uh, from the 30s until his um, death in the late 1950s. He was your old style journo 
And you see, I'm your old style historian. Yes. So yeah, that's good. <laughs> the, the journos like to give you a fantastic story. Yep. Well, whether it's completely true doesn't really matter because it sells papers. It hasn't changed. <laughs> uh, you know, historians, we get a reputation for being nitpicking and saying, oh, I don't think that's right. And I've got to go and check the records. And um, because, as you know, Brian, in racing, tall tales and true all the time, and everybody's got their conspiracy mm. theories. Mm. So. Anything you read that's got the name of Tommy Woodcock on it, uh, treat with a grain of salt, except a wonderful book by Jan Wasitsky, yes. which um, I think you know and, and very much admire because he actually taped Tommy uh, speaking. And uh, the voice of Tommy Woodcock is so distinctive and so genuinely Australian. Um, so you can tell the real Tommy from the uh, the slightly dressed up ones. Yes, and he, he wrote it beautifully in, in the book, Jan, and um, he, he writes Tommy speak, doesn't he? He does, and uh, it's a kind of Australian poetry. And mm. I think, you know, that's, that's what I really love about going back to the, uh, the contemporary times. I mean, at the, I, I talk about the journos, and of course, one of the people who did write really well about Farlap, who only saw him on a few occasions, was, was Banjo Patterson. And um, a lot of people don't realise that Banjo Patterson was uh, late in his career, used to write for the sportsman in, in Sydney. And uh, he yeah, he was a bit like our late mutual friend, Les Carlyle, and he mm. just had a wonderful turn of phrase. And so Banjo Patterson's observations about racing, um, I'd read any day. Jack Rowan, probably not. Yeah. Andrew, so how early did Tommy Woodcock actually come into the into the story? Uh, was he always with Telford when the horse arrived? Uh, no, in fact, the um, the first strapper of uh, Farlap was a young guy, a, a, a namesake of yours, uh, Cashy Martin, a uh, young Sydney jockey who uh, tragically lost his life in a in a racing accident. Um, so uh, Telford had um, uh, uh, Woodcock as a, as his um, apprentice. Uh, Tommy had wanted to be a, a jockey, but um, people say he put on too much weight. Well, there wasn't much weight to Tommy. No, I, I no. think he just wasn't going to be a great jockey. Um, and so uh, he sent uh, Woodcock down to Melbourne with Farlap on his uh, on the first trip down there. Martin's mother didn't want the boy to go down there, and um, Woodcock was sent down there. And that's really where the, the romance between Farlap and Tommy Woodcock blossomed. Um, I think that Tommy just, he was a, a natural horseman. He he was your ultimate um, unpretentious horse whisperer and he very quickly developed this bond with Farlap. Uh, and then he got a lot of publicity because, of course, the people would come and take the photos of, of the handler, the strapper, with Farlap and they'd get talking to Tommy. And I think because he was a, an attractive, shy personality, he began to get that kind of media coverage. When he went to... Um, uh, as you say, he really supervised the the training of Farlap when they went to the states for that last uh, fatal um, part of Farlap's career. Uh, he was um, described there in one of the one of the things I've read from the American press as Doctor Woodcock. That would have amused him. <laughs> <laughs> the um, the golden year really uh, appeared to be when when the great horse was four years of age. He had sixteen starts for fourteen wins. He had five runs, was beaten first up uh, in Sydney in the spring of, of his four-year-old uh, time, but then he won his next five, I think it was, um, and he he kept beating Night March. Night March had beaten him, or you know, he finished down the track in the Cup in 29. Night March had won the Melbourne Cup. And apparently the connections of Night March um, after the spring, uh, you know, that particular year when they, they were four, they they wanted to go to the Caulfield Cup. Mm. But they asked Tommy, was was your horse going, is Farlap going to the Caulfield Cup? And all intents and purposes were that he would go for the Caulfield Cup in 1930. But there was a change in plans. Um, Tommy, in bringing the horse back by train, was told to uh, stop off at Albury from Sydney and spend a couple of days and give the horse a bit of a break. And there's some great stories around that one. Well, of course, this is where you, you start getting six different versions, but um, one of them is that there were some very big bets that had been placed. That doubles betting was huge in those days. You could put, uh, a, you stood to win a lot of money if you could get the Caulfield Melbourne Cup double. 
Um, there were certainly plenty of bookmakers who were keen to not see Farlap run in the Caulfield Cup and uh, to uh, let Amonis uh, have, have his chance and that double came off. But you see, I, I tend to, um, maybe I'm just naive, Brian, but I, yeah. I tend to go for the, um, the racing story rather than the, uh, than the betting story in these because uh, Farlap was already handicapped to carry nine stone 12. Now that was uh, a record uh, weight for a, for a four-year-old. Um, it's 62 and a half. And if you think, I mean, how many horses would you really expect to race in the Melbourne Cup today if they had 62 and a half kilograms? So he risked a penalty. If so he, he had the... 62 and a half in the Melbourne Cup. Yep. So yep. had he won the Caulfield Cup, which would have been expected, and mm. he had 62 and a half, He'd have been probably carrying 65 in the cup. That's right, because the handicapper could give anything up to a 10-pound penalty. So that would have taken you up to over the the weight that Carbine had. He had the record weight-carrying record. He was an older horse when he won his Melbourne Cup. And um, so I think that... Um, the uh, the great desire was to win the Melbourne Cup, and I think that if they'd run him in the Caulfield Cup, there was a very serious risk that they would have been given a heavy penalty because Farlap at that stage seemed to be invincible. So to me, yeah, I'm sure it suited people to get those nice big doubles out of Amonis and, uh, and Farlap, and um, the conspiracy theories are there. But I also think there was a lot of toing and froing. Again, think back at Winks and think of, of the strategy of Chris Waller saying, will we run her in this race? We'll only run her if she tells us, she'll tell us when she's ready to win. Um, there was a little bit of that with, with Farlap and there was always that slight difference of opinion between what Tommy Woodcock thought was a good idea and what the actual trainer with the power, the owner, Telford had. It was written in the uh, in the Tommy Woodcock book and Tommy has said that he uh, he stopped off for four or five days in mm-hmm. Aubrey and stayed at a local hotel, which would have had a stable at the back back in the 30s, and um, would walk the horse around the streets just to exercise him. And no one really knew it was Farlap, so it was very low-key, so he could do it sort of in a relaxed style. And the connections of Night March, and Farlap kept beating Night March in the spring up there in Sydney, uh, they asked Tommy, were you going for the Caulfield Cup? And he said, yes, we are. Um, and night marches, people said, well, we're not going to take you when we're going back to New Zealand, where they did. And the horse continued to race there for another season and a half. But it turned out Amonis was back for a fortune. <laughs> Urban myth has it by people close to the Farlap stable, yeah. the double of Amonis into Farlap. Yeah. Amonis wins the Caulfield Cup. They've got Farlap. And they say the figure was something like £200,000. Yeah. So maybe the bookies had to have Farlap stopped uh, from winning the Melbourne Cup. He was ready then for the Cox Plate, and this was in 1930. He was expected to win. He was 7-1 to one on, Winks odds, and there was only a field of six. But horses like Mollison were involved in the race, but it made no difference. To Farlap, he was at the peak of his powers now, Andrew. Yes, he won the Cox Plate by four lengths. Now, in those days, the Cox Plate actually used to take second billing to the Mooney Valley Gold, Gold Cup. Cup exactly. It? Um, but nonetheless, look, I think Farlap, uh, was one of those horses who helped build the reputation of the Cox Plate. He, of course, won it again in in uh, in, in the uh, next year. So he was uh, he was already showing he was brilliant. And there were certainly people, uh, and I'm sure bookmakers were nervous about um, about him going on to win the Melbourne Cup. Um, there would have been it it would have been those Caulfield Cup Melbourne Cup doubles where they would have felt exposed. Now. Again, there's a lot of uh, of stories and myths and mystiques around what actually happened. But uh, and some people said, "Oh, it was all just a publicity stunt, and Farlap was never shot at." But Tommy Woodcock was there, and um, he knew it happened. He certainly did. It was uh, on Derby Day morning, the first of November, 1930, and the horse was to run in the Wait for Age Melbourne Stakes, which became the McKinnon Stakes in later years. Let's listen to. Uh, a grab, an audio grab from Tommy Woodcock talking about the morning of this particular day because the horse was set to go to the races for the Melbourne Stakes on Derby Day and he would race on Derby Day, Cup Day, Oaks Day and the final day. An incredible four straight days at the Carnival in 1930. Here's what happened that morning. I used to walk and lead him everywhere. So I get halfway home and I happened to see this car and I didn't know was it try and make it back to the race course or try and make it up the stable. It was only straight along the road, so anyhow, I decided to make it to the stable. 
and I just get the first street and car start and I just took him in the corner and uh, propped him against the fence and the car come whizzing along around the corner and all he seen was a milk cart up the road. All of a sudden a gu gun come out the back window and fired two shots at him. Never right down low at him. Fired anywhere up near his head. But they missed him quite a couple of feet in the air in front of him. Joe, yes, the milky caught me pony. I never lost paws. He, he pulled me off the pony, but I didn't lose him and went because we went straight up the stable and then we had police protection from then on. So there's Tommy Woodcock talking about a car coming around the corner mm. and the horse was shot at. Yep. And you could uh, read all these different reports in the newspapers. Were there pellets? Was there a shotgun? Were they aiming at Farlap? Were they just trying to frighten him? But honestly, if even if a car backfiring can get a horse frightened. Um, so Tommy uh, was definitely shot at. Um, and of course, that really put the wind up. And there are other cases of, of horses um, who uh, were being got at in, in that era. Um, many years later, uh, Bo Veet, who was a, f a favourite for the 1941 Melbourne Cup, um, there were uh, gangsters had a, a go at uh, trying to, to shoot him through the stalls, through the wall of the stable. So it was not unheard of, but obviously that really put the wind up uh, the, the stable and the idea was to try and get him out of um, harm's way as, as quickly as possible. So yes, he, he ran in the Melbourne Stakes, he won the Melbourne Stakes, the Wait for Age race, the, often the traditional lead-up to the Melbourne Cup, and uh, then it was, I think, important to take him away from those uh, stables near Caulfield and get him out of sight until the Melbourne Cup itself. We take up the story again with Tommy Woodcock, and he tells us what happened after the Melbourne Stakes. On the Monday morning, Mr Raymond, we had a gate at the back and worked in a couple of times around Geelong Wharf race course, and then Tuesday morning I just took him for a walk around his stud because that's when the float was late then to go to the races. It was raining like anything. Oh, I don't know how late it took us half an hour to start the float, I suppose. But anyhow, we eventually got there because we had police protection all the way. So, you know, we made it all right. It was a little bit late in the course, but we made it all right. You'd like the police kept the crowd well away from me because you know, we had terrible threats with him, what they're going to do, they're going to throw acid in his eyes and one thing and another at the Flemington. But we had good police protection, but the, oh, the crowd, he was, he was a crowd lover, Farlap, everybody loved old Farlap. And of course, as soon as they seen him enter the enclosure, they clapped and cheered. It was wonderful to hear them, the people. And so he, uh, he had that couple of nights uh, down there at St Albans Stud, hidden away, um, and Tommy just tells an amazing tale about the float not being, wouldn't start, uh, the rain was teeming down. In the movie, you see Farlap arrive as they're going to the barrier. Slight exaggeration, yep. but um, was powerful enough for the movie, but uh, extraordinary scenes you can imagine. Yes, I think it was he actually arrived at the course about an hour beforehand. And again, Melbourne Cup Day then as now is pandemonium, uh, organised pandemonium, but uh, the trying to get a float in and get the horse unloaded. And Jim Pike, who was uh, uh, to, to ride the horse in 1930, um, he of course didn't ride him in 1929 when the weight wasn't enough, but Jim Pike said that he was really nervous. He said, normally I never got worried on a race day but an hour to go before the race still no far lap um, so there was some genuine sweat around that. It's also a fantastic connection that, that he went to St Albans. St Albans stud in Geelong had a, a, a Melbourne Cup history of its own. It was uh, a place that was started by James Wilson who uh, won the Melbourne Cup in, in 1876 and uh, in 1873 as a trainer uh, his son won a Melbourne Cup. Um, St Albans had a fantastic Melbourne Cup history. So of all the places for Farlap to go, I think that was uh, that was the one. I remember going down there uh, probably um, in about the 80s um, with a film crew when, mm. when we were working with race play and I got to see the the stables and the yards where, where Farlap uh, was hidden 
and it, it was just just amazing. It was right on the back of the course at Geelong. It was a fantastic place. That's right. So the um, the stud farm has long since been subdivided, but the old house is still there, and also the stables. And so when they made the um, the Farlap movie, um, they actually used uh, the old St Albans stables. Uh, they didn't even have to uh, dress them up there. They were so uh, so. But of course, it's uh, anybody who gets stuck in the Geelong Road will tell you it's a long way from Geelong to Melbourne sometimes. And uh, but he got to Melbourne. Um, he was uh, flanked by police in the in the mounting yard, and of course he went on to win one of the most famous Melbourne Cups of all time. It's still uh, you, you see the footage of it very brief. You look at the at those uh, stills, and there's Farlap winning. His ears are pricked. It's a look. It's a bit like Winks again. It looks as though I could go around and do another lap. Thanks very much. Two days later, they brought him back to uh, Flemington for Oaks Day. So he's come from the two miles winning the Melbourne Cup in a canter yep. with 62.5 kilos. Yep. Two days later, he comes back to the mile wait for age Linlithgow Stakes. Yep. Oaks Day. Oaks Day. Um, he he doesn't have any trouble with the with the mile event there. And uh, uh, and he beat, beats good horses in the Linlithgow. And that's not quite enough for an iron horse. Um, so he runs again on the final day on the Saturday. And that was a mile and a half in the Fisher Plate? Yeah, the the CB Fisher Plate um, again Melbourne Cup connections there with with the Fisher family um, named after Charles Brown Fisher who owned the Maribyrnong Stud used to be up the the uh, the river, but um, the CB Fisher Plate was often a consolation prize for horses who didn't uh, win the Melbourne Cup, but uh, a number of Melbourne Cup winners went on to uh, to race in it. Um, I don't know horses were trainers' expectations were were tougher. Horses were just as um, as they are today, but they were prepared to uh, to come back and and uh, of course he went on to win that race as well. He took a break, and that was the four straight wins on the Melbourne Cup week of 1930. Melbourne Stakes, which was became the McKinnon, uh, the Melbourne Cup. Of course, once he won the Melbourne Cup, the bookies had to pay the money um, and the shooters all went into retirement for the time being. Yeah, I think that was about it. And actually thinking about that CB Fisher plate, I think, of course, again, like Winks, he scared off the opposition. So there were only two other horses in that race. And uh, officially there was no betting on that on that particular race because they didn't have Quinellas and things at, at that stage. So uh, it was an exhibition gallop really for him. But uh, then he came back in the, in the autumn and uh, started doing it all over. Again. He certainly did because he came back uh, in the autumn and the first one was on the 14th of February 1931 and that was the St George Stakes and he had a comfortable win at 14 to 1 on so these are, are Winks odds now and he won the St George then he won the Futurity and he ran a, a record and in the Futurity was over seven furlongs and for some reason he was 2 to 1 on uh, after winning the St George at 14 to 1 on and that was only a week later I don't know there must have been a word around that he hadn't worked well. Yeah, well, I think, of course, it's also that coming back in the distance, that seven furlongs with uh, over 10 stone, 10 stone three. The Futurity was uh, one of those uh, odd races where it was always a, a higher weight than ordinary races, wasn't it, Brian? So, the, Yeah, the it, was a different, it was a different scale of weight, and it might have been a wet track that particular year. And I think I read where Tommy, Tommy Woodcock said that... Um, uh, the horse put up an unbelievable effort, and many believed in that futurity. It was one of his greatest wins. It might have been the words of Jim Pike. Mm, well, he, uh, I think it's again it's that that versatility. And again, you know, I'm sorry to keep banging on about Winks, but I think of, of some of those races where she would get behind in the running, and people be saying, "Oh, I don't know that she's going to come good this time," and suddenly she'd go into an extra gear and. Uh, and come from behind and, and then suddenly make the others look second rate. And I think Farlap had that ability. Um, he was spectacular to uh, to watch. And as I alluded to earlier on, of course, he, he continued to grow. So when he was a three-year-old, he was a bit like one of those sort of rangy um, late teenagers who's, who's a good footballer but hasn't really fully developed into the, uh, into the magnificent specimen that, mm. that he became. And so... Later in his career, uh, was it through rose-coloured glasses? No, I think he just was a magnificent horse, and but he developed into one. And so people loved watching him, loved looking at him, loved admiring him, and uh, he kept on delivering. And when did the ownership sort of change? Uh, you spoke about the colours changing, mm-hmm. um, the race silks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Davis then extended a lease to yes. Harry Telford. 
No, so at that stage the lease the lease expired. Um, so uh, Davis had, as part of the deal, Telford had the option to uh, to retain a half ownership in the horse. And so from that time after the, that Melbourne Cup win, nineteen thirty, uh, they became joint owners. So that meant Davis had to have a say as well. And Davis was dead keen to get Farlap to uh, race overseas. Uh, to show the world that, and of course he was an American, Davis, he, he wanted Farlap to race overseas. So there started to be a bit of tension between Davis and Telford as to what the ultimate future would be. Um, Telford was a bit a bit wary about running uh, Farlap in the 1931 Melbourne Cup because, as I mentioned earlier, he had a weight of 10 stone 10 and that was over 67 kilograms. It's a, a huge impost. It's unbelievable. And uh, the great carbine had won with 10 stone five. Uh, it was a very big ask to expect the horse to be able to, to win under those circumstances. But Davis was very keen that Telford run in the Melbourne Cup um, and uh, probably, in hindsight, it, it was a shame that he did so But because uh, he finished... Eighth in that Melbourne Cup. Um, it was the only time since he was a, a very young horse that he'd been unplaced in any race. Um, again, I think it was simply the weight that, that was too much, even for Farlap. I think if we just go back to that autumn uh, as he was four and we mentioned the Futurity Stakes, he then the following week won the Essendon Stakes, then he won the King's Plate at Flemington, and then he got beaten on the 7th of March uh, in the Lloyd Stakes. So I think there was a sequence there where he ran on the 14th of February, the 21st of February, the 28th of February, the 4th of March, and the 7th of March. Like, Mm. they're only spaced sometimes two or three days apart. And just listening to Tommy Woodcock and reading his story, he seemed to think the horse got tired. That's when the horse went for a break. Mm. But he came back and won as five, uh, won the Underwood Stakes at Williamstown uh, first up. And away he went again. He then won the Memsey. He won, went to Sydney and won the Rose Hill Hill Stakes. He won the Spring Stakes in Sydney, the Craven Plate, the Ramwick Plate, and then back for his second Cox Plate in 1931. And again, it was a canter for him. And then on to the Melbourne Stakes on Derby Day before that Melbourne Cup in 31. Yeah. And you're picking up there, Brian, the uh, the extraordinary program uh, almost coming week after week um, fronting up again uh, but he was a horse who um, obviously could take a, a lot of hard work I've, I've mentioned that that Woodcock and Telford tended to differ differ a little bit as to how much hard work um, Farlap should have um, Tommy Woodcock often thought look the horse is it's one of those natural athletes and he doesn't need a lot of tough work Telford was a great believer he was the sort of Percy Cerity of his day oh. that you know you, you run your athletes up the sand dunes and you keep them uh, fighting fit but there's also the mental side of it and and horses like humans can become jaded um, so there was this extraordinary um, sequence of, of wins as you mentioned and then that uh, that second Cox plate in 1931, uh, that was one of the few trophies that actually David Davis got to own, um, because there was a um, there was a, an actual Coxplate trophy that that came with that. So that went to Davis rather than Telford. Okay, then the Melbourne Stakes, as we mentioned, in the Melbourne Cup in 1931, when he he ran unplaced, and uh, it was a shame to see him finish down the track, but. Uh, at the same time, he started three to one favourite, so he was backable. Mm. But Tommy wrote where he spoke to Jim Pike uh, as the horses left the yard there for the Cup in '31, and Tommy was concerned that the horse was tired and was flat, mm. and he he expressed that same um, feeling to uh, Jim Pike, and Jim Pike said, leant down and said, "Don't worry, son, I'll look after him. Mm. I'll look after him." And I think Jim Pike obviously also had a very strong connection with Farlap at that stage. Um, there were several jockeys in Farlap's career who, who rode him, but uh, Pike is always the one that's that's most closely associated with him. Those famous uh, photos and paintings of uh, of Pike on Farlap, and uh, he was a, a very um, a very astute horseman. He, of course, was Sydney based, so he that's one reason why I didn't ride him in all the races. The other was to do with the uh, with with the weight. 
It's a, it's interesting looking back now that the field in that Melbourne Cup uh, was quite a small field, um, despite that ten stone ten. Probably Farlap frightened off a number of other horses. We are talking about the Depression, um, and it was expensive then as now to run your horse in the Melbourne Cup. And I guess you thought, well, if I can't win it, I'm not going to waste the money. But a field of fourteen, I think it was one of the smaller fields. Mm. Um, White Nose uh, was the uh, was the winner, and. Uh, um, it was. Uh, it, it was. I think it deflated Flemington. It, another little factual curiosity there, Brian. It's the first time that the tote operated on a Melbourne Cup at Flemington. That was the brand new totalisator machine was up and running at Flemington, um, and the crowd that day was a little bit bigger than it had been in 1930. So uh, it was possible to put your bet on Farlap and lose your money. And so he was unplaced in that Melbourne Cup on the 3rd of November 1931, but plans were to go to America because over there to be run on the 20th of March 1932 in Mexico was the Yoga Caliente, billed as $100,000 US, the richest race in the world. Um, Davis, the owner, was keen for the horse to go. And Telford had many horses in work down at Brayside, And he decided not to go, but to look after the team. And this gave Tommy Woodcock, and this is probably why the the, the sort of the romance of Tommy Woodcock became so strong, sadly because he, he was there when the horse died. But Tommy then took out a licence, obviously had to get a working visa. And at mid-20s, he was going to be training this great horse for the big American race, going by ship. Yes, because, of course, at that time, uh, going by ship was the only way to get there. And, of course, that meant months out of a, out of a schedule. Uh, clearly, that was why Telford um, decided that he didn't want to go on that trip. But he was partly opposed to it anyway. He was not really comfortable with it. Um, so Woodcock uh, travelled with uh, Farlap to New Zealand. It was said that um, he also had a very, he'd been set up with a very nice cabin, but Farlap really preferred to have Tommy sleeping in the uh, in the store with him. So I don't think uh, Tommy Woodcock got to see much of his luxury cabin. Um, there were several weeks in New Zealand. There's a sort of period where where uh, it was acclimatisation because it was a big deal to take a, mm. a horse um Overseas, and in some ways, uh, I think there's very strong evidence that the travelling um, did contribute to uh, to Farlap's eventual fatal illness. I think that is is a factor, but certainly it was a big ask. They did everything to try and make the horse comfortable. Um, they gave him that stopover in New Zealand, um, but uh, then had to travel across to the Pacific to uh, San Francisco, and from there down to Agua Caliente. The, the first leg to Wellington in New Zealand um, was on the Wanganui, a steamship called the Wanganui, and it was akin to Noah's Ark because he shared the great horse had his stall and a little area down there, but he shared it with cattle and pigs and vegetables, and Tommy said the conditions were appalling. Um, they couldn't get much fresh air, but there was some sort of little tunnel they had from upstairs to get some fresh air in, but when the seas got rough... The sea had come through, but he said, in actual fact, it washed washed the area out because he said the stench was unbelievable, but the great horse was unfazed. Mm. Uh, that was the passage across to Wellington. Tommy spent Christmas and Farlap um, with a stopover in Wellington. He said that was very comfortable, but then they had to prepare to uh, then go by ship to San Francisco. Mm. So uh, the conditions of uh, travelling horses, are, they're always tough, and people complain about uh, the, the tough journeys going by air, but... Uh, uh, those hours would be multiplied into days and, uh, and often very uncomfortable circumstances. But uh, yeah, so, so Woodcock was with him all the way. Uh, he was clearly uh, very closely associated with it. In, in the American press, of course, Tommy Woodcock's proper name was, was Aaron Treve Woodcock. So there are various versions of that. Um, he'd be Trevor Woodcock. He'd be... Dr. Woodcock, um, they'd mix him up with uh, with the, the vet, Bill Nielsen, who went over later to be part of that contingent. Um, and, uh, of course, if they were going to interview anybody about Tommy, it'd be uh, about Farlap, it'd be Tommy Woodcock. The Manawoy was the ship that they travelled on uh, from Wellington to San Francisco. And Tommy said when there were days uh, from land, he said the horse 
would come out and they had a pretty good sort of facility. There was a, a sort of an area where they could walk him around. He had a, a lovely stool, so it was very comfortable, mm. the, the long leg across to San Francisco. But he said one particular morning uh, he took him took him upstairs to, to walk him on the deck, etc. and he said the horse's ears were up and his nostrils flared. He said, and there's no doubt the horse could smell land. Mm-hmm. And, and Tommy asked the captain, he said, how far away are we from land? He said, about three days. And he said, the horse, the horse knew. Yeah, I, I reckon Falap had a pretty uh, high intelligence, didn't he? Uh, those smart eyes. And but you've been to Menlo Park, where where he was stabled in uh, in San Francisco. Because perhaps we should explain to people that in those days, if you sort of think of prohibition and gangsters and all of that stuff in in the uh, America in the thirties, there was a a prohibition, a ban against bet- betting in race courses, and uh, one of the uh, smart operators had set up Agua Caliente, uh, hot springs, I think, in, in Spanish, um, just south of the Californian border, and the gamblers could go down there. It was Mexican law, so it was a bit of a casino. It was a bit of a, um, uh, a, a hot spot. They'd have, they'd have singers. They'd have, it, it didn't have huge crowds. I think the actual crowd for that race was probably fifteen to 20,000, nothing like a Melbourne Cup crowd. Um, but it was uh, it it was a different kind of world, and so that was. Uh, but that was why he was stabled in San Francisco and then transported down there for the races. But Menlo Park itself, uh, it's now basically a suburb of San Francisco, Brian. Pretty well. It's right next to Palo Alto, and uh, my daughter and her family were living there, going back about six seven years ago, and it was the adjoining suburb. And I was driving through there with my daughter when I was visiting uh, Rebecca and um, I saw we were going through Menlo Park and I thought, this rings a bell, this rings a bell. So I couldn't get back to her place quick enough to Palo Alto to find out more about Menlo Park. Yeah, and, and it was a light bulb moment. I discovered that's where Farlett was stabled and I found his stable. Did I found you? his stable. It yeah. was at a college, yeah. and on a college ground and it was being used as a storage area for football and hockey equipment and the painter would leave his tins in there in the different stalls and I traced a lady that um, knew more about Farlap in America and I, I tracked her down and they were the actual stables and I actually videotaped uh, where the stable block was and still is. So that all those memories flooded back but that's where he was at Mr Perry's farm and Mr Perry had a lot of standard breads and that's where Farlap actually was stabled and then took the, the long trip down to Tijuana down to uh, Aga Caliente for the race. So it was just incredible. You could feel and, and smell the horse when you were there yeah. and seeing this, this old barn. It was incredible. There's something about old barns that, that sort of get us get us uh, quite sentimental. I was going on about the St Albans barn, and I think it's just because that, that sense of history, in some ways, the ways in which horses are looked after and the, the smell of the horses, the smell of the stable, that's something is, is there. But you would have liked, if it was in Australia, there should have been a, a heritage plaque on it, I think, Brian. I think it still, uh, still exists. I'd like to go back and yeah. see if it still stands, and there are a lot of people fighting to make sure it did uh, did remain intact, but it was on college grounds. But it was quite accessible, actually. Um, and they, there was an urban myth that part of the remains of Farlap were buried underneath the football field. And I think, actually, uh, some people with some sort of scientific detectors from Sydney went there to see if they could find the steel box, which might have had mm. some of the, the innards of, of Farlap hidden away. They were never found. But, Andrew, the media got right onto this wonder horse from Australia, the American media, yes. even 90 years ago. Yep. They wanted to know all about him. They, were, they, they couldn't believe the training uh, method of this young trainer, Tommy Woodcock, because it was so unorthodox compared to their breeze-ups. And they wanted to know why wasn't the horse galloping here at Caliente? Why was he working through the sand hills where the coyotes went and the rattlesnakes went? <laughs> and I think probably Tommy Woodcock was in his element because he didn't have Telford breeding breathing down his neck saying, give him some more hard work. Tommy really believed the horse just needed uh, a bit of gentle work. There were a few, a couple of secret gallops, I think, probably when nobody was looking. But it's quite true. I, I had a, a couple of months in the States uh, a few years ago uh, 
uh, studying at a, uh, a racing library over there and a chance to look at some of the American periodicals. Uh, and uh, Farlap was given uh, star treatment. Um, there was a little bit of discussion, as there often is about ra- races, was this the best field that really could be assembled? Um, it was supposed to be the richest race uh, being run in, the, uh, in America, but of course... Um, they ended up uh, cutting the prize money in half, uh, which would have been a bit annoying if you've been lured over there for a hundred thousand US dollars, and they suddenly say, "Sorry, it's going to be fifty thousand. Um, a bit of discussion as to what the quality of the of the opposition was, but uh, look, they were they were good horses. They weren't the Kentucky Derby winner, um, but they were they were good quality horses that that Farlap was up against in that race, uh, and he had to be at his best. There was also a lot of anxiety. You talked about gangsters. And um, prohibition and so on was was there a bit of a risk that somebody might try and get at Farlap and uh, in the running of the race? Uh, they were all uh, things that had to be thought about. And he uh, he went over with his racing shoes and the shoes that he he do his track work in. But uh, there were problems. He had a cracked hoof, um, and apparently Tommy got a lot of assistance from the farrier over there who constructed the right sort of shoe to give the horse cushion at the back back heel area mm. and this really gave him comfort when he when he could race but there were concerns and there's a bit of a, as we'd say now a cloud over whether he'd actually make the post in in march of that year yeah that that's right i think uh, one of the stories was that he'd got a, a stone in the uh, in the hoof but uh, maybe it was riding over those rattlesnakes and coyotes you were talking <laughs> about uh, but um, again with the cooperation of the uh, of, of the local farrier um, farlap was was it appeared to be in tip-top condition, and again, that race is just extraordinary. To it's preserved on on film. Uh, to watch that race is is still uh, it, it raises the hairs on the back of your neck. And Billy Elliot rode the horse. Yep. He he came over by ship. Um, so, to my knowledge, Elliot had never been on the horse before. Is there, is there any recollection of him riding the horse outside Jim Pike through the sort of the the golden period? Yeah, he actually had ridden him on several occasions, Brian. Um, he'd had um, six wins on, on Farlap. Um, again, he tended to be used if the if the weights were, were lighter uh, earlier in the career. So he, he was familiar with the horse. Um, Pike, as I say, had ridden him through most of that last of that career, but, but Elliot was not... Um, uh, a stranger to Farlap, and uh, again, they seem to have a pretty good uh, understanding. And we watched the race, um, and and the, the story goes that uh, it was a new contraption, the, the starting gates that were like chutes, mm. not so much the gates, the cages that we have now. And the, the starter at the time said to uh, to Tommy Woodcock, would you like to give the horse some barrier practice because this is a new gate. You, mm. you won't be, you know, he's used to the tapes and the tapes flying up in the air yep. back in Australia. This is different. They're a little shoot type of things. And Tommy said, um, no, he's, he's a pretty intelligent horse. He'll have no problem with that, which had them all scratching their head. Yeah, and in fact, um, one of the reports said that he was a bit slow to start in that race. And uh, you see him taking up a position a, a fair way back in the field and, uh, and also out wide. Um, the you know, race caller's nightmare when you see a horse going three wide, four wide. He was really even wider than that, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. The, the sort of story, and you watch it, he, he was near the outside fence to, to stay out of trouble, or maybe the ground was better out there, we don't know. This is back in 1932. Mm. Um, off the track, he sort of let him go with three furlongs to go, and uh, the description, I think we've got it on tape two and we'll we'll include it, uh, he just he was a powerhouse. He just gathered them up in a couple of bounds and mm. showed them what he was and he was it was freakish to watch and he played with the opposition. Another horse came alongside him in the straight. Billy Elliott clicked him up and it was as the movie said, he just drew away and it was all over. Yeah. So I, I think that is one of the reasons we talked about that that myth, the legend of Farlap, but it's the thing where a horse pulls out a performance which is over and above anything that you would normally uh, expect to see and for a horse to be able to win. And I think that uh, that's, that was such a sensational run that it, it as a swan song, as a last performance, um, it, it always tugs your heartstrings and it uh, makes you say, understand why we love racing. And the beautiful thing was, and this is documented, the, the sports writers of the time, particularly the racing writers, hailed him as the best horse to ever race in America and probably the best horse the world had ever seen. Yep, there was a lot of press speculation, as, again, would 
we're familiar with with some of the the horses who've, who've won re- in recent years, the Maccabi Divas, the Black Caviars, the Winxes, where they'll win a, ra- a big race, and then the next question from the journalist is naturally, what's next? What, what where are you going from here? Uh, there were several irons in the fire. There were um, uh, offers for him to to race in Chicago. Um, there were big racing at, at Arlington in, in Chicago against some of the best horses. A suggestion there should be a match race against the winner of the Kentucky Derby. Um, there were um, soundings for him to go to England. And uh, the connections, I think it was Telford got a telegram from King George V after Farlap won at, uh, at Agua Caliente to say congratulations, you know, another uh, tick for the British Empire, but uh, as against the Americans. So Davis was keen, very keen that, um, that those opportunities be taken up. And so in the two to two or three days after that race, a lot of spe- uh, speculation and admiration for this great Australian horse. Also, Brian, some of the um, commentators over there were would remind their readers that there had been other uh, Australian horses who'd gone over there and contributed to the the breeding scene. And um, later on, there was there was quite an exchange of Australian horses. Um, in some ways, um, when I say Australian, I know New Zealanders will pull me up on that, but um, it. In some ways, it opened the eyes of Americans to the fact that the horses we had in Australia were just as good as theirs and a lot cheaper. And that's one reason why um, some of those horses like Burnborough and Shannon and so on ended up uh, racing and standing at study in the States. All was well in the Farlap world after the win in the Yoga Caliente in March of 1932. Uh, where to next? There were offers flying from all parts of the world. This is 90 years ago, keep in mind. Mm. The 5th of April, 1932, Tommy, who slept outside Farlap's stall back in, uh, back in uh, the San Francisco area at Menlo Park, woke up and he takes up the story now. Early one morning, the horse got a little bit sick, wasn't that bad, didn't have much of a temperature, just temperature just rising and the vet came and treated him and, and of course when the day went on a little bit, the horse got worse and the vet was in terrible pain and the vet came and just said, you've got to get another opinion, left me there with a painful dying horse and not much I could do about it. And uh, when he got that bad, I, I let him in the box and he just threw one, one merciful squeal and hemorrhaged and died in my arms. And there it was, Andrew. It was over. He was dead. Yeah, and the news um, became front-page news in Australia immediately. Uh, Farlap is dead. I mean, that's one of the worst um, headlines that you that you would uh, uh, ever expect to see. And uh, there was uh, an out- outpouring of gr- of grief um, all around the world. Horse lovers had had now read about Farlap and suddenly uh, hearing this news. And uh, from that moment, of course, then the speculation had to grow. Why did he die? What was the cause? Um, And a lot of uh, very um, extreme and and sometimes far-fetched theories got going, and um, some of them still operate to this very day. Mm. Um, The likely... uh, I'm I'm not a vet. I've read a lot about the death of Farlap and all the different theories. I think Tommy Woodcock felt... That kind of guilt that you have when somehow you're responsible for looking after a person, a horse, something goes wrong, it's happened on your watch. It's not your fault, but you're always going over your mind. Is there something I could have done? Is there some way that this um, I should have seen this coming? Did somebody do something when I wasn't watching? And I think that doubt nagged Tommy Woodcock all of his life, and I think that's what gave rise to people saying, oh, Tommy thought maybe somebody had poisoned Farlap, or Tommy thought that it was the the uh, uh, the, the different um, tonics that they were giving the horse, or all sorts of reasons. Did I Should I have given him that fresh grass? Should we not have galloped him that? They're, they're the ifs and the buts, and I think they have fed these stories over the years about what really happened, but I think it's natural causes. Um, it's got a big long name to it, uh, which I can never remember, but it's a, a version of colic and I do believe that that is the, the most likely explanation for the tragic death of Farlap. 
It lives in our memory. It's an amazing story. Everybody makes a mistake, and I often thought after years, could the vet made a mistake and mixed the wrong medicine up? Because they come and they analyse everything. So I had feed, even the little scraps around his manger, they analysed that and couldn't find one thing. You know, and I thought, gee, could he have made a mistake? I don't like to say the man did, but it could be possible everybody makes mistakes, don't they? He keeps on um, telling us the story. I think um, the, the Farlap movie made a f- quite a few years ago, it's it's still a pretty good movie to watch. Um, but the stories just keep on going. Um, the Tommy Woodcock story is a, is a wonderful one. The horse himself is still there in the Melbourne Museum, mm-hmm. still one of the most popular exhibits. A beautiful piece of taxidermy. Um, at the time, some people thought it was a, a shame to see Farlap's um, skeleton. Uh, well, he's distributed everywhere, isn't he? Yes, Brian? he is. Yeah, he's uh, his skeletons in New Zealand in the uh, uh, in the Wellington Museum. There, uh, his heart is in Canberra. Uh, there are parts of him, as you say, that are buried at Menlo Park. Um, I have seen a photograph of a of a tombstone to to Farlap's remains in in the states, probably over there. Um, but the chance of actually going and, and seeing that and, and it's beautifully presented at the Melbourne Museum. Absolutely. If you're coming to Melbourne, go and have a look at Farlap. Pay your, pay your respects to a great Australian legend. Thanks, Andrew. Pleasure. It's a thrill to see the great six-year-old ease down that track like a wonderful machine and the crowd goes crazy as Reveille Boy makes a gallant challenge at the home stretch. For a moment, they're neck and neck, but Reveille Boy can't take it. Farlap was only loafing. Elliot gives him his head. He settles down to the business of making a race out of it, and it's a walk away. And a new record of two minutes, two and four fifths seconds, and the glorious total of $332,000 worth of winning. It's a great debut for the Australian beauty, Barnap, one of the handsomest horses ever seen on an American track. A little temperamental, but what star isn't? In one race, he's proved himself, and how the fans love it. A real champion and a new racetrack idol. 